0: Hi and welcome to the King of Earth podcast, my name is Abigail Kelly, I'm with Freya Marsk. Hi Freya!
1: Hello, lovely to be here.
0: Yes, you are coming here all the way f- through the lines, the electrons, the uh, some miracle of modern science that makes it so I can talk to you as you sit in Australia right now and I'm in yes. San Francisco. Uh,
1: across the ocean
0: yes across the across the great blue um i don't okay i have some things right off the bat freya okay so freya wrote some absolute gangbuster books i okay freya hold on so i'm a bookseller um Mm -hmm. and we have had your book stocked like we keep your book stocked all the time in our in our bookstore, we have like a whole genre section, and in uh, we have like two huge bays of uh, sci-fi and fantasy. And your book has had top billing on the like in a face-out section at the top for like, uh, I mean, for as long as a marvelous light was in hardcover. Um, so because it is such a gorgeous book it is beautiful it's to look so
1: at. beautiful it's i feel so- like it was just designed to look attractive on shelves I, so I, mean, I really lucked out in that way
0: you super did it's gorgeous but also it's such a Good fucking book. Um, I, well, I thank you. That- I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good. Because I, uh, I was talking to my fellow booksellers about about it, and they were like, they're like, oh yeah, well, you know, what's she written? That name sounds really familiar. And I was like, that book, that book, that's right there. Do the you one. see that one, one that we have? Uh, and and they were like, oh my god, I please tell her that, please tell her that I loved her book. And I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll convey the message. And then my friend stopped and went, no. Don't tell her as a bookseller I loved her book. Tell her as a person, as a reader, as a human being, I loved her book. Well, so, I
1: love that distinction because yes. like, booksellers have been absolutely amazing through all of this, especially given that it came out during COVID times. Uh, And like the amount of effort and enthusiasm that booksellers have um, shown for the book has been really, really lovely, especially, Mm -hmm. as you say, sitting here on the other side of the ocean, uh, knowing that it is for sale and probably face out in lots of wonderful bookstores in the States and in the UK. And I just can't I can't see it. I can't be there to stroke it and say thank you. But I really appreciate everything that booksellers are doing. So tell your friend thank you as a person, as a reader and as a bookseller.
0: Yeah, I think you know it's it's funny that the distinction has to be made because I do think that um I don't know there's a there's a weird thought that we like get paid for our good opinion or something which is absolutely not the case <laughs> um I wish we got paid for our good opinion that'd be great um but I think that uh there's a kind of inherent like what we think will s- this this idea that we we might have our views tinged by what we think will sell right um and so i do think it was like really sweet of her to just be like no i want to make sure she knows that it's not about the sales it's about that i just loved her book so it was, well that
1: is great. it is also good because one of our fears when we were trying to sell it was will this yeah. or when we were trying to sell it at the editorial stage was yeah will this sell because it is a bit of a strange beast when it comes to what genre it's in
0: I actually, so that is, okay, we are going to get to that because that was one of my main questions I had for you. Um, but so everybody knows the first book in the series, um, is called A Marvelous Light. It is, like I said, a fucking fantastic book. It is so, so good. Um, it's set in Edwardian England. It's got magic. It's got some just absolute gangbusters heroes, um, who are just so fun and so, how like how would you they are they are a kind of patchwork. I mean you can talk about
1: you can talk about them in their archetypes yeah. it? it is a jock librarian romance like at yes. it, it's heart, there's a jock and a nerd <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and both of them think of each other as oh they're just a jock or oh look a nerd and then the romance has to develop from there which is a very fun archetype to play around with then obviously you want to build interesting and sympathetic or just prickly and interesting people on top of that
0: I think it's really important to note that this is taking place in the milieu of a magical secret bureaucracy, because that's very important. (laughs) Um, Well, when I I was
1: trying to design it, I was thinking, what is the most fun kind of fish out of water to put in a magical world that is secretive and slightly academic and quite political and bureaucratic? And then I thought, Mm -hmm. what about the kind of person who went to university mostly to play rugby and cricket? And didn't really enjoy studying and still doesn't really enjoy books and, you know, is raised in a very certain way to be a certain type of person and now mm-hmm. is getting thrown into a place where he, ha- he knows absolutely nothing about what's going on. And so yeah. he was a very, f- so Robin, the main uh, external point of view, the audience mm-hmm. insert is the- to the person who's coming into the magical world, not knowing anything about it. Yeah. He was a very different type of character to the kind that I usually prefer to write, but he was so much fun because of that contrast.
0: He's also, he's such a, he's such a good boy. He's trying his he best. He is. He's he, such he, a good boy. I love it. He has Robin. a golden heart
1: and he just wishes that he could punch all of his problems and make them go away, which yeah. I have sympathy for, but it's not my first approach to problems.
0: Totally, totally get that. Um, but so that's the first book. And uh, this new book that is out now, uh, as as of the release of this episode, it will have come out yesterday. Um, A Restless Truth is... Like okay, take my enthusiasm for a marvelous light, and I want you to put that in a little box, and then I want you to put that little box into a much bigger box, and then I want you to put that in an even bigger box, and then put that bigger box into into an even bigger box until you have a box the size of say a human coffin, and I want you to I want you to. Imagine that as being so entirely full of my love for this book, because this book was so fully my shit that I died a little. I, I, when I read the description, I was like, "This book is gonna kill me," and then it did kill me, but not for the reason I expected. Ooh, um,
1: okay, I want to hear more about that.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, you will. I, I have, yeah. a, I have a much. I have a very extremely affectionate complaint to raise with you about why I'm now a dead body and you're talking to my corpse. Okay, Um, okay.
1: Well, I mean, again, that was a a little bit of a a gamble slash risk, and I was a little bit nervous about A Restless Truth because it is quite a different type of book to A Marvelous Light. Like, on the one hand, it's the same world, it's the same plot, there are some of the same characters, we are moving through the same kind of queer historical romance with magic. But because I'm changing point of view characters every book, just through the nature of using a different narrator, you're going to have a different vibe for the book. So A Marvelous Light has a very particular tone. And I had to just say to my readers, you have to trust me. I'm going to take care of you, but you need to come with me into book two, even though it's going to feel a bit different and the people that you're going to meet are going to be ones that you haven't been inside the heads of before. Just come with me. It's going to be fine.
0: Okay, but then you went yes, but also it's a murder mystery on what is essentially the Titanic, yes, um, and 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 that is such a profound mission statement (laughs) it's so good freya i like because i i picked it up and i read like the first like few lines of the synopsis and i was like sapphic great love the first one great i trust freya she's gonna take me there this sounds amazing this is my shit magic everywhere secrets cool like magical systems i'm here for it history awesome i love it and then i saw the thing about the boat and i was like oh my god it happens on a boat Well,
1: look, I had to do something for the part of my soul that is just very into the movie Titanic. And I think (laughs) there are a lot of us out there, probably a lot of people my age, who just watched Titanic a lot. And, you know, it was one of those pure romances that I think you don't actually see a great deal of in blockbuster cinema. You know, there are some rom-coms that are quite big, uh, but at the time... You know, it was this big historical epic, but the romance was played so straight and it's got tropes mm-hmm. and it's just, it was taken seriously and it was played beautifully. And I think for those of us who were always going to be into romance on one level, something about that story really captured me. And I think mostly it is the setting. Like if you're looking for somewhere to set any kind of story, just the trappings of the Titanic and the big ocean liners at that time are sort of hard to move past when it comes to a very recognizable aesthetic
0: Well, it's like it's either that or like a train, right? Like it's going to be like the, you know, Oriental Express or something like that. Yeah.
1: And then you can just layer on the fact that it's basically a locked room, but it's a really big locked room. Mm -hmm. So it's many, 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 many rooms, including some that have engines and storage and weird shit that you can get away with because some of the stuff that was happening on ocean liners at the time was indeed very weird. Uh, and rich
0: people were doing weird shit constantly. Rich people were doing real shit.
1: And I just looked at it and thought, well, I can I can put anything I want on this boat. If I want a menagerie, I can have a menagerie. If I want there to be a floating bagpipes band, I can do that. Absolutely. You can create almost any kind of person and give them a role on this ship. And to write a murder mystery, that's very enticing to be able to play in that kind of environment.
0: And have it be self-contained, right? Like, mm. whereas if it's if you're doing a murder mystery that takes place in like a whole city, things can get, I think, very tangled very fast. Because, it, particularly in this case, where there are no clues, there's there's nothing. We open up with the with the murder, and it's like, like it's a it's a magical murder. Spoilers, I, you probably guessed this, but I there's. No one saw it. They know why this person was murdered. They know the murderer must be on the ship. They know how. But other than that, it could be anyone. And The thing that they're looking for could be anything. They have no idea. There's nothing to go on. Now, imagine if you set that in a city. Like There would be no chance. You you, you absolutely would not be able to solve that. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, A Marvelous Light in, in its way is also a murder mystery. Yes. Uh, But it's a slower book because the main characters don't know that it's a murder mystery. Uh, They think it's just a disappearance, and they don't know the why yet. So book Mm -hmm. one, Marvelous Light, is all about setting up the why, and along the way they do, to a certain extent, solve a murder mystery. Uh, Whereas book two I wanted to be a lot faster paced. So you do know the why going in, yeah, uh, and at least the first half of the book Is a very rapid attempt to do one of those really classic murder mysteries, which was a lot of fun.
0: (laughs) It it felt so fun. It felt like such a classic cozy murder. Like it was so so good. I and it's funny that you brought up the Titanic actually, because as I was reading it, I kept getting these tiny little like I felt like you were winking, just like a little bit. Um, particularly when um. She goes down to the menagerie for the first time, and they're in the cargo hold, which she has basically had to trick her way into getting down there. Maud, um, I should say. That's
1: Maud's modus operandi, Yes, is basically, how can I trick my way into this situation?
0: How can I smile my way into this? Because everyone yes. thinks I'm harmless and stupid. Um, and... I fucking loved Maud. I I want to protect Maud with everything in me. I want to cradle her in my hands. I love her so much. Um, but she's fantastic and she's very smart and she's very capable. Um, but I felt like you were making at the readers when you you mentioned the classic cars that are in the cargo hold. And I was like, mm, mm, Freya. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I mean,
1: it's, the- it's a very Chekhov's gun situation. You can't <laughs> mention the car and then not use it again later on in the book.
0: No, no. Um, so, *A uh, Wrestler's Truth* has two absolutely fantastic characters. Well, it has a huge cast of fantastic characters. Oh, Everybody yes. you meet is amazing. Yes. Um, I I loved every little kind of like spin-off route, because basically they have, like I said, they have no idea who killed um, the this person at the beginning. So they're kind of just shooting blind and going to anyone who even might be slightly suspicious or have any connection at all, possibly, to this big conspiracy and being like, hey, was it you? Um, more or
1: less. I mean, that, that's how these murder <laughs> mysteries work. Like if yeah. you're in a small village and you don't know who did it, all you can do is start blundering around trying to uncover people's secrets in the hope that one of them will involve a motive. And obviously I didn't have time to do that because I was doing several other things in the book. But I do always love the idea that you just sort of poke around and uncover people's secrets that have nothing to do with this murder just because you're in the mood to uncover secrets.
0: You essentially get little micro-interviews with these side characters. Every time they talk to somebody, it's usually like a page or two, and then the stories kind of like interweave as they kind of intersect with each other. Um, but- Every single one of those little vignettes with these characters, you give such a like gorgeous little snapshot of their absolute, just like, oh, this person is also super weird. Like, everyone's just super weird. Everyone has their issues. Everyone is doing some suspicious, sh- like, absolute wild man shit on this boat of their own variety. Don't look in that person's bag. He's probably got porn. Like, please. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's really weird. And a lot of it is like, very sweet uh like um god was was it lord albert who is yes uh, yes (laughs) i loved him
1: i yeah i just i that's what i love about books where you are allowed a slightly larger cast and when you're writing a mystery you are allowed a slightly larger cast Mm -hmm. and obviously in romances as well like part of the fun of romances is looking at people's workmates and family and friends and making sure that each person feels like they're in the middle of their own story and you're yes. just seeing in that one and a half pages a very superficial tangential glance at someone who really does have all of their own shit going on. Yeah. And being able Through to do that
0: tape.
1: Yeah, and being able to do that for for minor characters is part yeah. of the fun of writing, especially if you're playing with a large cast because you can't give mm-hmm. anybody star billing. And I was obviously playing with two main characters and then setting up a couple of major secondary characters as well. Uh, so everybody else didn't have time to be fully explored but i wanted to make sure they all felt real even if they were also ridiculous
0: oh like they were so good they were so good i just imagined so many like big mustaches and tassels and smoking jackets and just bad perfume it it like it was so evocative it was so great um But the main characters are Maude, who is going under somewhat of an assumed name, an assumed last name. Yes, Um, she's
1: going under an assumed last name, which was a little bit of an in-joke, actually. So, okay, a little bit of a tangent. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with Lois McMaster Bujold's Vorkozigan Saga, which is a science, a space opera series. Okay, so one of the vibes I was going for in this book was... To try and emulate what Bujol does in some of the early books in that series of a young person who doesn't really know what they're doing yet, but has this wild, unformed charisma that means that wherever they go, they can kind of improvise their way into collecting people around them who will probably help or at least can be sort of you know gracefully strong-armed into helping through sheer force of charm and i knew that that was the kind of person that i wanted Maud to be because that's a very fun protagonist to play with someone yeah. who doesn't really have plans doesn't really know what they're doing is still discovering a lot about themselves uh but has on their side this ability to drag other people into their orbit and their problems uh, and <laughs> make life make life both difficult and better for them uh and so the 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 main character of this series uh, miles wakosigan when he first goes for one of these wild adventures as a young person he assumes uh, his mother's surname when he is pretending to be somebody else which is nice and that means somebody who makes cutlery and so i use the surname cutler for Maud as my little like head tilt to the kind of book that i was writing
0: that is that is such a deep cut, Freya. Like that is like so deep in the paint. I love yeah. I was, it. I was I was thinking
1: maybe it. I just won't tell anyone about it, and I'll see if anyone notices. And I, I just don't think anybody That's was so going. Nobody was going to notice.
0: No one's going to make that connection. <laughs> so here we go.
1: We'll just put it out there. That was my little so homage.
0: If you were ever doing a trivia on on a Restless Truth, um, now you can get that one. Well, I feel like uh, the so- the more
1: interesting trivia is what the word "nightsmith" means. I don't think anybody actually. Would get that unless you're a, a real geek for etymology of obscure, you know, occupational yeah. surnames.
0: Yeah. But yes,
1: that is Maud. Maud is the kind of person who will go under an assumed surname and go off on an adventure on very little prompting.
0: She's so good. Like i Maud was such <sighs> evocative is a word that's vastly overused, but I think it is it is um I think you really captured this moment where somebody is an adult but they're an unformed adult, right? Mm-hmm. Like they have a strong moral um backbone. They are they are formed. Their core is done. They have Um, a budding sort of confidence in themselves but they still have a lot to work out in terms of like what they want to do with the rest of their life that's ahead of them as well as like other things right like sexuality for instance yeah Um, you know other small things like that Um, particularly in a very repressed culture Um, and I think and and Maud is very much
1: a product of both her culture and her upbringing so yes she's a Mm -hmm. 19 year old girl in 1909 she was brought up, you know, she's the daughter of minor nobility, so she was brought up with expectation about what her life was going to look like, uh, with parents who did not love her but saw her as mm-hmm. a status symbol and an extension of themselves, with a wonderful older brother who also has that moral back- backbone and is the only reason she turned into a decent person in the end. Yeah. And there's a line in the book where she's she sort of, puts her finger on one of her key fears, which she's never really articulated to herself before, which is that she doesn't actually have a personality because she thinks she's just created herself in reaction to everything that her parents wanted her to be. She just turned around and said, no, I'm going to do the opposite of that. Uh, And she's always been somebody who has short-lived passions and moves from one thing to the next because she finds a lot of things interesting and a lot of causes worth her time. And you're right, it's that sort of cusp of adulthood feeling like you should start to commit yourself to a path, but not knowing what that path is going to look like, you know, knowing that there are certain things expected of you in your station and as a woman, but knowing you don't want those and having started to decide what you want and not sure yet how willing you are to fight for it. It's like there's a lot of uncertainty in Maud, but at her core, she is a very strong certain person who just needs to work out where she is and where she's she,
0: going she has this moment um where she is thinking she's i forget exactly what it was but she's recalling how she had wanted to run away like violet ran away um, mm. and how she had had this discussion with Robin at one point in her life where, where, you know, I think it was like he was asking why she never did it or something like that. And she's like, because I would have immediately turned around to watch through the window to see what their reaction was. Um, yeah, she would have
1: had no plan beyond I'm no. doing this to make my parents angry.
0: And she she I got this sense that Maud felt very she feels very maybe ashamed is the right word but she's not proud of her lack of conviction um like she's not proud of her she feels like her brother always knows what to do and that he can just pick a path and he can follow it and do the thing and mm. that kind of instability in her conviction i think to me read as the source of a lot of her uh insecurities of like she doesn't think she's very smart which is like yeah she doesn't
1: on the one hand, she knows what kind of person she wants to be, but on the other hand, she doesn't trust her instincts because she exactly. thinks her instincts yeah. are bad. Um, she thinks that she is very like her mother and she can see in herself this gift for charming people uh, and for making them do what she wants. And on the one hand, it's very useful if you're trying to <laughs> conduct a secret murder investigation. Yeah. But on the other hand, she associates that kind of like superficial charm and deception and being two-faced with her mother. Uh, who she's trying desperately not to be like and so part of her turbulence comes from the fact that she thinks she's one kind of person who has to everyday choose to be a different kind of person and we I think as the reader can sort of see that she's wrong that at her heart Mm -hmm. she is an instinctually good person but she doesn't see that so she looks on being the kind of person she wants to be as an everyday hard work that she has to do.
0: Yeah, and I think that's such a, I don't know, that's such a 19-year-old thing, right? Yeah, um, yeah. This idea of being like, am, is this really who I am? I think it is, but I don't know. Like, 19 like, is you... the
1: age when you, you look at a fictional character in a book and go, that's who I want to be like, and you start making yes. deliberate choices
0: yes. about who
1: you want to be, and like, how do I present myself to the world? You try on different types of people, you try on different approaches and moralities, and and even personalities to a sense and that's sort of what Maud is doing and she's trying and to hear herself into the right person
0: Exactly like she's she's she thinks that she has to you know hammer herself into a new shape every day when the reader knows like no honey that's just you you're you're mm. good don't worry about it you got to trust yourself a little bit um but then again she's 19 so like I get it, I wouldn't trust a 19 year old either. And I wanted
1: to to set her up very deliberately like that because it is the opposite to what Violet is doing.
0: Exactly, yes, that's what I was gonna say. Cause Violet is reckless in her confidence and her lack of, um, like she has conviction, she has too much conviction in that it is kind of s- scattershot. <laughs> She'll just kind of do whatever because she assumes that like nothing really matters. So why not just go with the flow and mm. kind of make a mess of things? Violet is um, a,
1: a very interesting one because you're seeing her at a very specific point in her life. And she's still young as well. Mm-hmm. Like she, she's 23. Yes. She acts like she's a bit, quite a bit older. She pretends to mm-hmm. be a lot more confident and worldly than she is because she is comparing herself... To the person she was when she left England. Uh, yeah and uh, and a lot of her confidence and the way she acts is partly because she now sees herself as safe where she was not safe previously. like she's like, mm-hmm. now I have money, I can do whatever the fuck I want because yes. previously it was an, an act of rebellion in the same way that Maud is Maud's behavior is often an act of rebellion, but now it is an act of I am secure. I have money. I can do anything and I can afford not to care what people think of me, Uh, having come away from a life of insecurity when it comes to finances and safety. But so much of the way she behaves is an act because Mm -hmm. she has been so used to finding the kind of person who can survive uh, in, in, in the situation she's been in. And now she's, she enjoys being theatrical. She enjoys the kind of person that she can allow herself to be. She loves the freedom Of being theatrical and scandalous and not caring Uh, but at the core of it she has a very similar fear to Maud's in that she doesn't know who she is really because she spent so much of her life pretending to be other people but she She doesn't acknowledge that
0: that. yeah she uses it as a shield right like she uses this like audacious nature of this like Lawsuit fair. I don't give a fuck what you think of me. Like you think that I went and slept with that dude. Uh, You know that's chill. I don't care. I have money. Like she comes across as
1: fearless, and Maud is immediately attracted to her because she seems so fearless. Uh, But actually, most of what Violet is is a very careful shield built around a very substantial fear.
0: Yes, Maud is considerably braver, I would say, than Violet
1: is. Well, when I was trying to conceptualize this romance in a way that makes it easier to talk about trope-wise, I sort of said it's a rake-wallflower speedrun, and it is, but it's also a rake-ingenue story where the characters are initially mistaken as to which of the characters they are. Yep.
0: Yep. It Okay, so now I'm going to tell you how you killed me. Because... Let's go. Freya. Freya. I love this book, Freya. I love everything about it. Your prose, top-notch. Your symbolism, gorgeous. The character's incredible. This dialogue, feels like you are snappy. driving
1: me towards a pit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I am, because you yeah, killed me, and I want revenge. Um. So I just... You hurt me so bad. About 15% of the way in, they have had dinner. Maud has snuck into Lord Hawthorne's room. And some things happen that caused <laughs> me to throw my phone across my room because I had a visceral reaction to the secondhand embarrassment that <laughs> I couldn't, I can't. It hurt me so bad for him. Like, well... So, I mean, Mm -mm. as
1: meat cutes ago. No,
0: no. It is is unacceptable. This was, because I just, listen, I love Violet. I love how Violet's just like, oh, well, you know. On the other hand, on the other hand, you had to do me so dirty that way.
1: I, I feel to, we should I, be a little bit more explicit for the listeners. So, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> what we
1: are referring to is <laughs> what I think of as the true meat cute of the book. It's so, they brilliant. do actually, Ward and Violet really do is. actually meet at dinner, but it's a very superficial, oh, you know, you seem nice, oh, you're very exciting, you know, yeah, you know. It's, it's a meet, but it's not a meet-cute. The meet-cute comes when Maud gets stuck in a cabin at a time when Violet is being fingered by somebody else. And Maud has to burst in and stop things from going any further.
0: She doesn't... She didn't have to. She could have waited it out. She could have hid in the closet. She could have got ducked underneath the bed. It would have been embarrassing. No, if, there
1: was she, nowhere she, to hide. I was very clear uh, about that.
0: You are the architect of this <laughs> universe, Freya. There could have been. <laughs> I mean, I
1: just, I just feel that there is something wonderful yeah. about your first proper introduction to the love of your life being when somebody else has his fingers up them.
0: Like... Yeah. Come on. Yeah. I, it's good. It, no, it was good. It was good. It just killed me dead. But and it also tells you everything
1: you need to know about Violet's approach to sex very quickly.
0: Yes. Yes. And also Maud's experience with things. Yeah, exactly. And because not...
1: so much of the romance is built on sexuality and sex lessons and who has experience and who doesn't have experience and how you think about sex and how the way you think about sex changes. Yeah. I wanted that scene to set up exactly as you say, Maud's experience or lack thereof and attitude to sex and Violet's very fast. And also it has, you know, Lord Hawthorne being Lord
0: Hawthorne. Lord Hawthorne being the absolute bi-icon. We love him. He's great. He's traumatized. He's awful. I love him very much. Um, It still hurt me.
1: (laughs) I mean, you are a romance reader, so of course you love Lord Hawthorne.
0: Yes, like, I love them all. I love them all. They're I know, all but fantastic. even even
1: even people before people have read a restless truth, even yeah. just on the basis of a marvelous light where he appears for one chapter and then goes away again. Yeah, there are a lot of people sending me tweets saying, "There's just something about him. Like I know he's terrible, but like he's very intriguing." I'm like, "You have spied the asshole aristocrat with secret angst. It's, I'm sure you can tell what's going to happen." <laughs>
0: Well, he's handsome. He's an ass, but he also does the right thing mostly. Uh, so, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> when he has to. When he has to do the right thing, he well, does. I had and to that's do, enough.
1: I had to do a great part of his character journey in book two, in A Restless Truth. Yeah. Because obviously, in A Marvelous Light, he doesn't want to help. And he just kicks everybody yeah. out the door and is like, nope, not helping at all. And he desperately tries to continue not helping. In A Restless Truth. He but unfortunately, not <laughs> the the immovable object of Lord Hawthorne is up against the unstoppable forth of Maud life. And because it's Maud's book, Maud wins.
0: Yes, she does. Yes, she does. She lectures his ass. It's great. She's like, I know I just caught you fingering the love of my life, um, but also you're going to help me and I'm not going to give you a choice. Here is my speech about what is right. And you're going to want me to shut up so bad that you just say yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think she possibly underestimates how much people wanting her to stop talking <laughs> is part of him cooperating. It
0: happens a lot! <laughs> oh, I love her so much. Maud is so good, and is so good, and Lord Hawthorne is also good. I just really want to see him get his shit-wrecked. Um, That's, you know, by love, by love.
1: Shit-wrecked shit by love? Well, I mean, may I interest you in book three? <laughs>
0: I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see the cover for that one. I'm sure it's going to be gorgeous. But I'm also sad because I don't don't want the the series to end.
1: Well, Um, I mean, I think if you liked book one and you like book two, book three is going to give you Lord Hawthorne having his shit wrecked by love. Uh, But it is also much more of an ensemble book because I had to build the cast quite carefully. So book one is very much is Robin and Edwin. You get some glimpses at other people, but it's their story, their book them yeah. against the world book two is mord violet with some help from friends so i yeah. gave you the beginnings of an ensemble cast book three which i have just finished writing was an absolute nightmare show because i had somehow written myself into a corner where i had seven main characters but only two narrators i had to do a whole or well, most of a romance I had done some of the romance in book two. Uh, I had to do most of a romance, plus bring a fantasy trilogy to its climax and to its end, and also show you all of the characters from book one and book two on page, constantly doing stuff. So it was a yep. bit exhausting, but I think I think it worked out. <laughs> I'll know more I... when I have my edit call with my editor in, oh, a,
0: in a few God. weeks. Yeah, I I that is balancing that many characters who it's one thing when like the audience doesn't really know all the characters in the ensemble cast right if you're just introducing them right off the bat in in an ensemble right it's I think you can get away with a lot more whereas like if the readers already love all of those characters and they know what their story is and they're already like committed to seeing more of them on the page it's like you really can't shortchange anybody every single appearance needs to be like not an afterthought it needs to be top-notch so mm, I-,
1: I think and look obviously romance authors do this very well where they write series of romances yeah. that are building on story and bringing in people who are yet to have their love story, people who've already had their love story. Uh, But I think in romance, you are allowed to focus a lot more intently on the central couple. And much as I would have liked to do that, and I certainly did, because I've been looking forward to writing the romance in book three, since I had planned the trilogy, I was also stuck also having to do a fantasy plot, which required a lot more people on page than I would have if it was just a genre romance.
0: So I think that is a really good segue into talking about how the hell you sold these books because I like I think we're in this really really interesting age of um, kind of genre bending uh, where things are kind of like I if I had was given your books and was told okay you can put this either in fantasy or you can put this either in romance but you you need to pick um, like I it would be really hard for me because. You know, in my story, we do have it in fantasy, but like your books are explicitly, absolutely romance novels. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And and so like publishers don't super enjoy <laughs> the nuance of that. Um, that is a tough sell. Yeah.
1: Look, honestly, uh, it was it was excellent luck on a few different yeah. levels. Uh, number one is that there had been some books that had broken this ground already So Captive Prince by C.S. Pacat was picked up for professional publication because it had been a very, very popular uh, self-published serial. Uh, And it is a book that doesn't quite fall traditionally into either fantasy or romance, but is very definitely both. Uh, And Tor.com, my U.S. publisher, had already published uh, Witchmark by C.L. Polk uh, and Docile by Cam Sparza, which are both... Uh, also science fiction and fantasy with romances in them that follow romance beats uh, and have that sort of the things that you would expect to see in a genre romance. If you understand what that genre is looking for. Yeah.
0: Sarah J Mass too. Huge.
1: Mm, mm, I haven't, I haven't read uh, those books, but I, I understand what, fantasy, where they're coming from in terms one of, of like fantasy yeah. and romance. Yep. Yes. So I think, yeah, there had been people coming before me, preparing the ground and proving that there is a market for this, that people who read fantasy love to have a lot of romance, that people who read romance will, as long as it is sold to them correctly and not attempts to be misled about whether it is a love story or whether it is a capital R romance, romance yeah. readers will go outside of you know their usual publishers if they can be told that there is a romance here, that it's for you, like you will enjoy yeah. it as well. So I was lucky in that it was the right time when I was trying to sell this book. Uh, there was also a certain amount of deliberation in that it was my the second book that I wrote. And the book that I got my agent with, we couldn't sell because it was too much of a genre weirdness, because it wasn't fantasy enough. It was much more of a romance novel set in a secondary world with no magic. And there was like a quite an extensive plot outside the romance, but it was still a romance. But... It didn't look like what you would think of a fantasy romance to look like because there was no magic and no, like, you know, fates of nations, no dragons, no shapeshifters, no yeah. nothing that you would think of for fantasy romance. And so we couldn't sell it yeah. either to fantasy or to romance because it wasn't enough of either. And my agent said, please decide what genre you would like the next book to be. Yeah. Uh, and so I said, okay, we're writing a fantasy book. It's just going to also secretly be a romance novel, but it's going to have magic in it and historical fantasy is a genre that people understand. So I said, right, I'm writing a historical fantasy series and I'm gonna put three queer romances in the trilogy. That was my mission statement. Uh, And then I was really lucky to be picked up by Roshi Chan, my editor at Tor.com, who really understood on a gut level what these books were doing and what kind of story I wanted to tell, and said, I think we can sell this, I think there's a market for it, and she was right
0: i I absolutely agree um you know what I've seen in the bookstore right has been uh a, like a vindication of that like we are seeing we're people we are reading romance more than ever in history because more romance is being published ever than
1: mm-hmm.
0: has ever happened in the, all of the world and all of time um it's fantastic um and it's kind of bleeding out of the of the little romance section that if you're a cool bookstore, you have. And if you're a really cool bookstore, you have a really big romance section. Um, and it's bleeding out into into all these other genres. And I think people are finally getting wiser to, like you said, being very particular about the language used and the promises made therein mm-hmm. about whether something has romance in it or if something is, in fact, a romance. Um, the difference being, you know, A Marvelous Light and, say, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. <laughs> you know yeah and
1: i think as long as people understand yeah what they're saying when they are talking about something like you can say this is a romantic book or it has a a really great love story in it and that's fine but because the publishing industry as a whole and i think the arts world as a whole has consistently underestimated romance and never really bothered Mm -hmm. to quite understand it as a genre that has you know its own subculture its own expectations and its own you know thriving set of extremely smart people who read it there is this thought that oh I know what a romance is when actually they don't know what a romance is and yeah I'm always really proud to see A Marvelous Light on books on lists of romance novels because I think it is a romance novel I designed it like that I wrote it like that I built the romance first and then I built (laughs) the plot around the romance and that's what I've done for for the um, um, A Restless Truth and for book three as well they have The beats that you would expect and they have the happy ever after for all of the central couples i'm not going to kill any of them i'm not going to break them up (laughs) it's romance everyone's happy
0: i i was actually surprised it was one of the first things when i when i picked up um a marvelous light i was like is she tricking me is she gonna is she gonna trick me. is this gonna is this gonna promise something that it can't deliver on? because and I have been hurt. Yes, before. that is a
1: legitimate fear, especially if you are picking up something that is not published by a romance publisher. And yeah. so I have been as loud as I can that this is a romance novel that will not betray you, but I think all I can go on there is word of mouth and yeah. people who read romance, talking to other people who read romance and saying you can trust this book with your genre yeah. expectations.
0: And boy howdy can you trust it. I was again cuz I I don't know why like I I obviously I was super stoked to read Wrestle's Truth. I was like, "Hell yeah. Two ladies on a boat solving crimes. Love it. Let's do it." Yeah, and they and they just
1: the sex toys, right?
0: <laughs> and then well no and then I was like I still had this like I think just because I was um picking up a book from Tor, right? I like had this thought where I was like, okay, well, maybe this one's going to be like a little bit toned down. Uh, maybe it's going to be a lot more heavy on like, let's say the murder plot, right? And less the romance. And yeah, and again, about 50% of the way in, they, they have their meet cute. And I was like, all right, okay, this hurt me, but Freya's made a promise to me with this scene and I absolutely 100% believe she will fulfill it.
1: Well, I think a lot of people, the sex in book one kind of took a lot of people by surprise because, yeah, it's a book from a fantasy publisher. And even Mm -hmm. though it's being, even I can sit here and say, it's got a romance, they're going to end up together, it'll be great. Again, this was something that I tried to be as upfront about as I can and say, look, this has explicit sex scenes in it. The kind yeah. of sex scenes you're probably not used to seeing in fantasy novels. Some people were always going to be taken by surprise from, but by these because they would have picked up what they thought was a fantasy book and been like, oh, OK, now we have a seven page explicit sex scene. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and look, either they're going to put the book down or they're going to just be like, yeah. well, this is new to me, but I'm going to roll with it because I'm enjoying the characters. Uh, and, you know. Fair play to those people. I really hope I managed to open their mind a little bit and that they go yeah. in and seek out some romance novels if they think, oh, actually, this is the good shit. Where has yeah. this been hiding? I'm like, well, I can tell you exactly where this has been hiding. It's on the other bookshelf. Please uh, turn
0: around. Please right turn around. There. It's been and, behind you this whole time.
1: Uh, because, I, yeah, that was always – like, I love writing sex scenes. I love including sex scenes in my books, and that was always something I was going to do. And I, all, all I could do was be very upfront, like – when, I, when we were first on submission with it, I kept second guessing and asking my agent, do you think we should tone it yeah. down? Should I shorten them? Should I take one out? And she just went, "No, nah. this is what the book is. And we will find people who, who want that in the book. And we have. And so yeah. you're right. I wanted to make sure that there was that very early scene in The Restless Truth so that my readers could be signaled that I'm not going to tone this down. And especially because I don't know if this is, Warranted or not, but there is a little bit of a reputation around in sapphic romances that they're a little mm-hmm. bit softer, a little bit sweeter, maybe not quite as explicit um, as you may see in MM romances. And I knew from the get go that Mord and Violet, for all that they are nice people, sort of, were not going to have a soft, <laughs> sweet, calm romance. Their romance oh. was going to be spiky and messy and loud and exuberant and joyful Uh, And so I really enjoyed writing some of the sex scenes because some of them are sex scenes that turn into fight scenes that turn back into sex scenes. And obviously because if you're writing a good romance, the sex scenes should be doing something with the characters, like expressing something about them and also moving them to a different point in their own journeys and in the journey of the romance. Uh, And so making this romance a little bit louder and messier was something that i did quite deliberately and had a lot of fun with
0: yeah i i it was uh, you are so good with character work and i and i say that like i think that if you are somebody who doesn't read a lot of romance which i have a weird amount of people listen to this podcast who don't read a lot of romance it's very strange um but uh, you should if you don't, um, if that wasn't Obviously. clear the entire ethos of this podcast. Um, and the, romance is character driven. It just is. It's about two people falling in love and you have to care about those two people and you have to care about the fact that they fall in love. Um, erotica is, I mean, two meat sacks slapping together if you, or more or multiple meat sacks. And that's about you can do whatever you want in between, around, inside, outside. That's great. Um, it does, You don't have to care about the characters. The characters don't even have to care about each other. That's cool. In fiction, in general, um, you also don't necessarily have to care about the characters. The characters can just be symbols, right? They can just be representations of the human experience or something equally boring. <laughs> um but in romance, you have to care. And I think that that is something so rich that you are bringing to to this historical fantasy setting. You are bringing to this entire genre, right? Like, this idea of, yes, there's this bombastic plot. Yes, they're on what is essentially the Titanic. Yes, somebody got gacked in the first chapter. That sucks. Bummer. Um, but... More than that, the entire plot is about these two women finding each other.
1: Yeah. Um, On the basic, basic level, the plot of this trilogy exists to give six people something to do while they're falling in love. Yes. Which is probably not what a fantasy reader wants to hear, but, like, I promise I put a lot of effort into what they're doing. But it's...
0: (laughs) <laughs> Everything they're doing is so cool. Like it's so cool. I cannot stress that enough. It's so dope.
1: Yeah, but but in essence, that is what it is because yeah. it was designed on the structure of a fantasy of a. Sorry, it was designed on the backbone of a historical romance series, which is yeah. yeah there's some shit going on, but like, look at these people falling in love. That's Here's why we're what we really
0: care about. Yeah, yeah, and I I think you did that beautifully, and you made, you have this really. Incredible ability to make everyone feel at least a little vulnerable every single time they are on the page, um, which is like not easy to do. Like, you somehow managed to make Lord Hawthorne, who in pretty much every single scene he's in is a jackass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> every time he's on the page, you get a little tiny peek at just a hint of of something going on under there um and not just like oh he's got a dark past no no what's in his pants you know or something right like Uh no it's it's more than that because you know in romance novels that can happen too when it's like here let me shove a hot guy in front of the camera do you want him next take him and that's all you need to do um i felt like you every time you put a side character in every time you put a a character who you know is gonna have a bigger role to play didn't matter um even the characters who only had like a line it felt like you treated them as remarkably human um which is something that gets very lost in these really big you know super cool technicolor uh fantasy plots right um It's like, you could very easily have just cared about Maud and Violet and you didn't. Um, And I think that is like a skill that absolutely cannot be, you know, Mm underpraised.
1: And part of that, like, I think it comes out a lot more in A Restless Truth is because Maud is the kind of person who cares about people. Yes. And and notices people. Like, she notices Mm -hmm. a lot of things. Edwin notices people in Mm self-defense. Robin notices people because he has, in a similar way to Maud, has kind of absorbed a little bit of their parents' social skill. Uh, yeah. But neither of them care as much as Morton Violet about the people around them. And that comes yeah. through in A Marvellous Light because it is quite a solipsistic romance. Like they're very much wrapped up in each other from the word go. Yeah. And there are people helping them. And then they are. It's also. It doesn't hurt that I surrounded them in book one with terrible people. Like, the, really, yeah, the, most of the supporting characters in difficult. book one yeah. are not nice. You can tell that they are real people because they are horrible in recognizable ways. Book two, I was less interested in doing that. I wanted them to be surrounded by people who were not actually bad or unpleasant for the most part. Just people.
0: Just weirdos. Yeah.
1: Yeah, just some weirdos. And then at the same time, I was carefully layering in act one of book three. uh, Because I realized that I couldn't actually do the entire romance... Of book three on page in book three because there was too much shit going on I had to do yeah. too much else I could not throw these people together for the first time in the first chapter so I had to do the first beats of an enemies to lovers romance at the same time as more violence romance seen from an external perspective which again was a lot of fun and I had and keeping that balance was something I had to do a yeah. lot of in edits I had to keep stripping back how much attention Mord Violet were paying to other people because I had some comments from a very, very smart and uh, one of my better readers was like, you need to stop talking about the boys. <laughs> like, I, it's not their book yet. Just... Calm down! And I was like, I know, I know. I'm just trying to Maud and Violet I'm would just not be to... paying this
0: much attention. Oh, Maude gives.
1: N- I mean, Maud for all that she noticed things about people. One of her things is that she will never notice what a man looks like because she is a baby lesbian. No, and she gives yep. doesn't mm-hmm. care. Oh, he's tall. That's it. You know, he's and, got she'll, a and weird she'll notice. Mustache. She'll notice That's social it. class markers because everybody yeah. did. But she has no opinions on what Lord Hawthorne looks like. She has no opinions on what any of the men look like. Whereas Violet, in her narration, she will notice and she will comment. Uh, So I had to sort of drag them back from noticing shit that was going on and just had to feed it to the reader sideways through dialogue so that when we hit the ground in book three, you already know who these people are. You know what they think of each other. And I can just go from there.
0: You know, that reminds me of like the greatest feat of uh, like romance setup that I have to this day read was in uh, Nalini Singh's Side Changeling series. Um, it took like seven books to build up and to make it okay to have a relationship between these two characters. Um, and because initially when they meet one of them is a grown-ass man one of them is 15 years old and it's like you you as a reader i i still can't believe she managed it because it that is so i in any other in any other hands i would have been like this it's intolerable i cannot possibly even knowing that it's going to be years down the road when they get together i can't deal with that 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 is too gross um the amount of like weightlifting that nalini singh did in every other book like every single book had dedicated sections to understanding these two people and understanding the social positions they're in and understanding how this could possibly work and setting up the conflicts it was like they had their own mini books in every single book and you didn't notice it was happening until like the book before when it got really heavy um I was like, I, to this day, I'm like, how did you, what trickery did you, did you use? What sorcery?
1: Yeah. See, face? I'm complaining about managing this in three books. I have no idea how people who like Nalini Singh, who do those long running multi-character, multi-pairing series do it. I assume witchcraft. Uh, I yeah, have nothing um, yeah. but respect for it because I do not think I could do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I am in all She's also just. In one of the greatest writers, I she just recently was featured, I think. Um, I'm blanking on the publication, but they talking about how her books are a beautiful example of how um, it solved the protagonist problem in most like fantasy and sci-fi, which is like where one person gets to save the world. And her books are all about how community is built and how that community is what saves the world. Oh, just ah. Oh.
1: Yeah. And like, I, I, and I love, I love that. I love everything where you have a, a romance that builds a family. Yes. You know? And so that was that something that I do very deliberately in this trilogy and that I was doing very deliberately, especially in book three was this idea of now that we have all these pieces on the board and they have, you know, varying ways of intimacy and varying amounts that they know each other. How do I pull them together into a family?
0: I, that's something I really did love right off the bat about Restless Truth was Maud, how she so clearly had, like, she's literally taking notes for Edwin. <laughs> like, she's like, <laughs> like, she's thinking of him like he is 100% in her life. Like, he is her other brother. He, she, they are family, not a question. Um, yeah, and there and is a reason that really this is sweet. the
1: central book because Maud is the emotional linchpin. Like, she is the... Yeah gravity-producing body at the center of this found family. And she is somebody Mm -hmm. who deserved to be born into a huge family with, like, siblings and cousins and loving parents uh, because she would have thrived. And she's always, always unconsciously been seeking that kind of family. Uh, And what you see in A Restless Truth is the beginning of the swirl of gravity around Maud that will produce this family in Book 3.
0: These people who can tolerate her dimples, uh, long enough to, yeah, yeah, because like I
1: mean, Edwin had to come in via Robin. Like, if Edwin and Maud had met, it would not have worked. Like, they wouldn't have been drawn together in the same way because Edwin needed Robin to attach himself to, uh, and be drawn in sideways, basically.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I. I. There. There are so many wonderful themes in in your books, and I do think that they fit together beautifully. I can't wait to read book three because I think that the you are just gonna weave this tapestry uh, together so well. The sex um, in book three
1: is it, it is it is uh, I have been <laughs> I'm again leaning hard on everybody trusting me and being like, are we ready? Okay, we're gonna just take a little step up from what we were doing in the first two books. Let's incredible.
0: go. Wall. you're like listen i know we're shutting the door but before we do that i'm gonna set a firecracker off in this room Abs- real that's fast, exactly
1: okay? that's it uh, so even if you never see these people again i have given you enough of what they do in the bedroom that you can just you can just have a ball imagine I'm fantastic writers uh, go forth
0: it's incredible i i love this i love the idea of you burning the house down as you walk out of it preya that's really beautiful uh but I do want to know, at the end here, at the end of this this episode, I would love to know what you've got going on in the future. I know that you have... The next book is coming out. Well, obviously, you just turned it in, so, you know, yep. not quite yet. But, like, beyond... Beyond trilogy, that? Yeah. What, what, what are, what are you Well, plans? I have
1: nothing that I'm on contract for beyond that, so I have a certain so amount you're, of... So you're... F- I'm free. I can just free. do whatever. I Actually, like, I recently had a sit-down with my agent to talk about what I'm going to write over the next few years. So we have plans and i think i'm going to try and write there's a novella idea that i have that i want to try and write over november december i've never written a novella before but i have an idea that i want to play with i don't, I don't know what it will turn out like but it's going to be fun uh, i have yeah. two ideas for standalone uh one fantasy and one science fiction books that i'll probably try to write over the next couple of years i haven't got any ideas for trilogies i think i want to leave leave trilogies alone for a little while uh at least yeah. in the fantasy Uh, sense. I am also writing contemporary romance. It's a couple of contemporary romances that I have written that are the first two books in a series that we are currently shopping around. Again, because I can't do anything easy, they are a little bit difficult to sell because of the nature of what kind of romance they are and where they're set and what story they're telling. So I don't Mm. yet know whether we'll luck out with those, but I am quite enjoying having contemporary romances to write in between my fantasy things. Obviously, I'm hoping to publish one of them somewhere at some point. Uh, And ideally, I'd like to have a career with a foot in both genres. Like, I can't imagine that my fantasy and sci-fi books will ever stop also being secret romances. But I think if I can write straight romance as well, and by straight romance, I mean... Capital R romance, not which no other genre <laughs> topics. Not straight romance. I'm not really into straight people in those terms as like main characters of my books. <laughs> yeah, M- most of, the, most, of them are, most of them okay. are going to be queer on one axis or another. Uh, yeah. But if I can do that kind of writing as well, I think it will scratch that itch for me. That will mean I can then maybe write some science fiction and fantasy that has romance in it, but is less of a also belongs on a romance list kind of book.
0: Yeah, I I also find it hard to believe. Like I, reading your writing, I'm like, there's, this is not a this is not a person who can easily divorce the romantic language. I tried from her to language. explain
1: my novella ideas. My agent, she's like, oh okay, so where's the sex scene? I'm like, I don't know if there is a sex scene. She's like, Freya, come on, where's the yeah, sex I mean, scene? I'm like, oh, it's yeah.
0: probably here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Novellas are. Not, Romantic novellas are very hard because you gotta hit those beats. But you gotta hit them really fast. I uh, I released a novella collection this past year, and um, it was it was funny how many people were like, yeah. So it was a little insta lovey, and I was just like, it's a, I gotta do this shit in forty thousand words, babe. Listen, yeah, that's why there are gonna certain be tropes
1: that, send, that lend themselves much better to novellas, and I think the structure of the one that I'm gonna do is gonna involve like flashbacks so you're going to get yeah. to see the romance develop uh and then you're also going to have the plot that is happening in the present yeah so i think because i mean yeah romantic novellas day. great for second chance great for mm-hmm. exes to lovers you know great for long-term friends for to lovers
0: paranormal.
1: i'm sure yes, but yeah yes. you want to have some of that emotional work done before the yeah. story starts I think if you try and like, I'm sure people can do it and I'm sure there are people out there with the skill to do it convincingly, but especially given that you are working towards an HEA or at least a a happily for now, I think if you have the meat for the first time and then you're trying to get everything done in 40,000 words, like that, that's just a magic trick. I don't know who can do it. I'm sure there are people out there who can.
0: It's really hard. My pet peeve is when people, I think the the misstep a lot of writers make is that they then think that at the end they have to have all of these, you know, hallmarks of the romance genre, which is like, okay, at the end they have to say I love you, they have to get married, and they have to have babies, and I have to fit all that in at the end, and also they meet, you know, 40,000 words ago. Good luck, right? Which is like... I think a level of not trusting your readers to be like, okay, I know these people are going to live happily ever after. I trust that they are going to, you know, maybe get married someday or not, but definitely be together. Right. Um, And so for me, a lot of times when I read a novella that just like hits wrong, it's usually because at the end or just like randomly after two weeks of knowing each other. I just love you so much. Will you marry me? And it's like, no, come on. <laughs> well, I mean, just all, of, in together all or of my
1: books in, in this trilogy do take place over quite a short time period. And like, and yeah. uh, it, it's a personal thing of mine, but I'm not super into people saying I love you on page. I really like when it is expressed, but it's expressed through words or actions yeah. that mean something to these people in particular. And at the end of a marvelous light, like you can tell that these people are in love, they're not going to say it, partly because they are British men of a certain, yeah. of a certain class who have known each other two At the weeks. turn
0: of the century. Yeah. yeah,
1: but you can tell and like you can see that yeah. the the groundwork has been laid for something really long lasting. In A Restless Truth, they've known each other six days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a I very really,
0: exciting six days. A very
1: exciting six days, but I had to make it clear that like these people are not on the verge of, yeah, you know, proposing and falling into the sunsets they have they still have shit to work through especially because part of mord and violet's romance was that they were immediately attracted to each other and had sex and then started finding out secrets and personality flaws that they still have quite a lot of work to do on so mm-hmm. even though i wanted to lay this really solid groundwork but show you that these are two people who are at the beginning of something yeah. Something that's going to be yeah. solid, but that, that they have a lot of work to do on. Uh, and that has been part of the fun in book three, has been showing where these other couples are at, uh, even yeah. while I am doing the romance for the third couple. And this this yeah. book, take, the third book takes place over a little bit of a longer period, I think about a month. Uh, so, but, but it ends...
0: I mean, it might as well be a decade in, in uh, comparatively.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. A month. You can get so much done in a month, especially for people who already have met before.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and then the third book finishes pretty much bang on a year after the first book begins. So even though each one is only showing a small amount of time, I do a lot of time skipping. Yeah. So there is a big time skip between the end of Marvelous Light and the beginning of A Restless Truth. Uh, and then there is a shorter time skip between when book two ends and book three starts.
0: Ah, oh, man. Wow. I am I'm very excited. I'm going to be sad, but in a happy way. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's always sad to say goodbye, but I also want to see Lord Hawthorne just get the shit kicked out of him, emotionally and physically, a little bit. Uh, I'm trying to so think of whether I he gets the,
1: the shit kicked out of him physically. I mean, pro- probably, Like, I'm like, there are certainly some, some, there there are some magical action scenes. So he falls down a
0: flight of stairs maybe or something. I don't know. He definitely falls
1: down a couple of times. Yeah. yeah, That's fine. But mostly it is an emotional, like shit kicking by love.
0: That's, that's where it matters. I think really for him in particular. Um, Yeah. I am. I'm super excited. I can't wait to read it. I love your books. Your books are incredible. And I Cannot wait to sell uh, a restless truth to all of the people.
1: Well, it is also bookstore. extremely beautiful. So it's freaking
0: gorgeous. It will, it will gorgeous. look very nice
1: on the romance shelf next to a marvelous light.
0: Oh my god, it's so pretty, it's so good. I really like. I think it was one of those covers too that I, when it came in, I, I hadn't heard of it. Um, so the first time it came in, we like put it on the shelf, and I was like, I literally walked past because the sci-fi fantasy section is right by our back room and so i'd gone to put my stuff back there at the start of my shift and i walked out and i passed it and i stopped and i walked back and i was like <laughs> what is that it's, that's new
1: it's so beautiful
0: so, it's gorgeous uh, yeah uh, so I have, you should buy it
1: well i have no idea what they're going to do with the cover for book three obviously book one is very um uh, arts and crafts movement william morrissey with a certain like that bright bright color scheme which i really love uh, and book two has that Art Nouveau uh, that pattern like of green. it. Oh, my God. And the greens and blues, that's... which is great the for – The green that's
0: like, does it have arsenic in it? Probably. Yeah.
1: I mean, there's a lot of – there is a lot of green and blue in the book just symbolically in terms of the ocean and, yes. you know, Maud having green eyes. and And I think, like, the color of it kind of suits the tone of, of the book as well.
0: They look so good together. I can't so
1: who knows what the colors will be great. for book three. I have not been sent any,
0: yeah, uh, any glimpse
1: of what book three is going to look like yet.
0: I hope it's a very garish yellow. He would hate that. Uh, <laughs> I no, want there to
1: be red, but I think that's just because there's quite a lot of... Red is good. There's quite a lot of blood in this one.
0: Oh! Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, we're hitting. That makes it's a the lot end sense. of a fantasy
1: trilogy. There's going to be a bit more stuff spilled than there was before. Also,
0: Hawthorne is real free with his knife sometimes, (laughs) so, you know, that that tracks. Well, uh, you can get uh, Freya's books, wherever you get books, uh, you can get Restless Truth right now. It's available. It's out. Right Right at this moment. Uh, The link will be in the description below. You can get it through our our bookshop.org website. And at the end of this episode, Freya... Do you have any pluggables? Do you have any places that you would like people to find you? Uh,
1: yes, I am mostly active on Twitter at, at Freya Mask. Uh, I'm occasionally active on Instagram. Mostly I just repost beautiful pictures that other people have done there. Uh, also just at Freya Mask. And my website is
0: freyamask.com. It's very pretty, too. It's a very nice website. Very aesthetic. Um, all right. Well, all of those links will be del- be below. You can find me wherever you know the places. Uh, Kingdom Thirst on Instagram and on Twitter, Works by Abigail on Instagram for my personal stuff and my books. Um, You can find my Patreon patreon.com slash works by Abigail, where I publish all of my weird near future paranormal romances are there. There's a lot going on currently. A lot of vampires in there right now. Um, And uh, and yeah, so you you can find all the links to everything below. Get a Restless Truth. It's great. It's got ladies. It's got boats. What more do you want? Um, Thank you for being on, Freya. It's been a delight. Thank you very much for having me. Kingdom of Thirst is a member of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and tons of new podcasts to listen to at frolicmedia slash podcasts.